In this interview, Jessica Jackley tells us the story of how she started Kiva, Kiva.org, with nothing but a dream in 2005. To date, Kiva has enabled over $1 billion in loans. Kiva is a peer-to-peer lending platform that helps underprivileged people in the developing world through micro-loans from common people like you and I. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. Books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, self-help, and much more. And I'm your host, Manny Vaya. Jessica Jackley is the co-founder of Kiva.org. After Kiva, Jessica Jackley was the co-founder and CEO of ProFounder, a platform that provided tools for small business entrepreneurs in the U.S. to access startup capital through crowdfunding and community involvement. Today, we're chatting about her book, Clay Water Brick, which chronicles the founding story and the early days of Kiva, Kiva.org. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and in this show, we usually go about starting with why we need to read this book and uh, what kind of what's the ten thousand feet overview. But we're not going to do that here. I want to focus on your journey, your stories, and how it all unfolded with Kiva. So let's start. Let's start with your uh, with the idea that, uh, as you say, you know, entrepreneurship is. It's it's the it's not you who said it, but that's something you you've embraced over the years, which is the ability to pursue opportunity without money, permission, or pedigree, or pursuit of opportunity without regard to resources you currently control. So tell us your early story, because that tells a lot about what was going on. Sure. So after school, I you know I had studied philosophy and political science and poetry. I even had a minor in poetry. Um, uh, and those things were just things that I loved. I, I felt like they taught me how to think and to write and to communicate in a clearer way. But what I didn't study and I had no interest in was business because I really thought that business was bad. Business was about being selfish and just working to make money for oneself, um, just sort of to, to take, you know, from the world as much as you could. Now, that was not correct. That's just sort of the impression that I had at that point in my life. Um so that was at the opposite end of my of the spectrum in terms of interests for me. But, you know, I graduate college, not really knowing what I wanted to do, thinking that I wanted to do the opposite, I guess, of business. But who knew what that was? I moved to California on a whim because I was in love with a boy. So not very, uh, you know, strategic career moves there, but that's what I did. And then I found myself actually working in a temp job as an administrative assistant in the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And it was there that I started to realize, oh, maybe business isn't as bad as I thought. Maybe there, you know, there's something to this for somebody like me who wants to think about, you know, social problems and um service. And it just so happened that the job that I had fallen into was at the Center for Social Innovation, this research center where, in fact, every day people are coming through those doors at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and thinking about how business skills and entrepreneurial thinking can solve social problems and can be, you know, applied to um alleviating poverty and, uh, you know, working on issues of corporate social responsibility, things like that. So I found that I had stumbled into a place in a community where people actually were thinking about and working on the things I cared about most. So it was there that I started to sort of say, okay, I guess maybe I was wrong about how the world works. Maybe it's not just the givers and the takers. Business is bad. Everything else, you know, might be helpful or at least the opposite of business might be helpful. I started to see that there was a lot of in-between and a lot of overlaps and the lines blurred for me. So I started to pay attention differently to what was happening 
at very least in that place at the Stanford Business School. One day I stayed after work, heard Dr. Muhammad Yunus speak. Um, he was there uh, in the fall of 03, three years before he would win the Nobel Prize for his work, you know, pioneering modern microfinance. And I stayed late after work to hear him talk. And it was one of these game changers, you know, these kind of rare lightning bolt moments of inspiration because I heard him talk about microfinance, which was nothing that I had known about before. Um, it was a brand new idea to me that a little bit of capital infused at the right moment in time could be like, you know, game changing for somebody else. But I also learned about his path, which seemed very accessible. Um, he sort of started out by talking to people that he wanted to serve and listening carefully to their stories about, you know, in that case, there were a group of women who woke up every day and borrowed money from local money lenders who charged them crazy interest rates. And basically he started to lend them money at not crazy interest rates and the rest is sort of microfinance history. You know, they were paid, they were able to lift themselves out of poverty slowly. And he started to do this, this micro lending um, and other services, financial services and products under the broader heading of microfinance. So the way he started was by sitting down with people and talking to them. And I thought, well, I could do that. And then third, you know, yes. Wow. Microfinance. That was amazing to learn about. Second, um, you know, there's this guy who's doing great work in the world who started in a very, in a way that anybody could start by sitting down and talking to people and listening really carefully. And then third, you know, he was talking about people who were poor in a way that I hadn't heard them spoken about. Um, so he talked about people who were strong and smart and hardworking. They weren't just needy and, you know, begging for handout all the time. They were working harder than anyone else to lift themselves out of poverty. And that was really, really meaningful to me because as a white middle-class American, most of the exposure that I had had to poverty was from well-intentioned nonprofits that told me sob stories focused on suffering and desperation that, you know, the intention of those stories was to make me feel bad um, so that I would whip out my wallet and give and become a donor so that they could go do great work in the world through their, again, well-intentioned and often very effective organizations. So, that's sort of the way that I had interacted with and, you know, in air quotes, interacted with mm -hmm. uh, the poor. So to hear Dr. Eunice talk about them as entrepreneurs was absolutely mind blowing to me. So I quit my job, moved to East Africa, worked in this um, sort of unpaid internship with a small nonprofit called Village Enterprise that gave $100 grants. And I learned from people who'd received these grants, not even loans, but it was something, it was close enough. It was something related to microenterprise development. And I basically got to interview those individuals and learn from them directly. I got to do the thing that I thought Dr. Eunice had done, which was sit down with people who I wanted to serve and hear their stories directly. And it was, it was huge. I got to, you know, I changed how I thought and felt and the, the things I believed about poverty and entrepreneurship. So that led to the ideas that, that birthed Kiva and, um, that was way back, gosh, 11, 12 years ago at this point. But Kiva stemmed out of this desire to really connect with those individuals in a different way to allow other people to hear those stories as directly from those individuals as possible, not mediated um, through organizations that wanted to sort of, you know, pitch a story that would get a particular kind of emotional reaction. So that began Kiva. I mean, I, this is a long uh, intro here, but... Um, mm -hmm. We started, my co-founder Matt and I started to lend, or started to, you know, post profiles of entrepreneurs. Yes, and who were poor. You, what, what year is this uh, when you were 
uh, starting um, the early the, the spring of 04 I'm sorry the spring of 04 I was in East Africa and then the spring of 05 we posted seven entrepreneur stories on a little website kiwi.org it had like three pages at that point it was so funny um they needed about $3000 and our friends and family chipped in and loaned that overnight almost we sent it over to East Africa and then over the coming you know, six months or so they repaid. So we did it again. We put another handful of entrepreneurs in the site and those, you know, those loans got funded and we did that again and again. And so our pilot round was 3000 bucks, but our first year where we were able to repeat that enough to facilitate, um, $500,000 in loans in the first year. Uh, the second year it ended up being about 15 million, the third year, 40, the, the next almost a hundred and Kivas. I haven't checked stats in the last few days, but it's around 900 million in loans. So we're almost at the big B, the billion dollar mark in loans, $25 at a time from everyday people all around the world. That's accumulated loans over the years or like annual accumulated. Wow. Yeah. That aggregate. is amazing. So yeah. uh, starting from 2005 to today where you're almost lending a billion dollars, but the story started like... Like uh, it was, it started with a pursuit as, as we started the story. The fact that you didn't really have, um, like you weren't an entrepreneur, you weren't uh, uh, starting businesses, you didn't really have technical resources, you didn't really have any um, specific entrepreneurial knowledge, but you went and did it. And I guess that's the difference between uh, entrepreneurship and just uh, hoping that your possessions or your um, uh, or what you re- what or the resources that you control will allow you to, to get there. Yeah. So just to say it, so um, listeners know exactly what you're talking about. I I really love Howard Stevenson's. He's a Harvard Business School professor. I love his definition of entrepreneur, entrepreneurship, and he says it's the pursuit of opportunity without regard to resources currently controlled. Yeah. Again, I'll I'll say it again: the pursuit of opportunity without regard to resources currently controlled. Now, it's interesting for so many reasons to me. One is that, you know, he really focuses on the pursuit, on movement, on taking steps forward, which is, again, something anybody can can do. And in fact, he articulates what it's not about. It's not, you know, about focusing on what you have right in front of you. Because I think there's always something that we can decide we need before we move forward. We might say, oh, I, you know, I, I can't, I can't go chase my dreams because I really need, um, you know, more money. Okay. Maybe, you know, more money would make it easier, but there's probably still something you can do to get, you know, a little bit uh, to get started or to take that next step forward. A lot of people say, oh, I, you know, I don't have enough experience or I don't have the right education or I'm too young or I'm too old. I mean, there's always something at every point in our lives and every point in our careers that I think we can tell ourselves. Yeah. about why we don't have the thing that we need to go take that next step. And I'm not saying they're just excuses. I, I get it. There are many people. I mean, look, my, my work over the last decade has been about providing resources to entrepreneurs that need them. Um, but I think for the vast majority of people, there's there's still always something. Like I think that the real work of entrepreneurship is figuring out what is the thing that you can do to move things forward or how do you get over or around or through that barrier despite the thing that you might not have or have access to at this particular moment that could make it that much easier. Like I have um, stories in the book about, for example, one entrepreneur that my second company, ProFounder, um, helped uh, to do fundraising. She was, her name's Cece Sayer, and she had a, of all things, it's so fun, she had like a whale watching tour company. Mm-hmm. Um, and she would take people out in, in, in boats to, you know, see wildlife and, and, it, she had this cool business, right? She needed a new boat. 
And so she was trying to raise the money on, on through the ProFounder platform that we had built. And long story short, she couldn't come up with the money that she needed. But what she had done was she had reached out to so many people and, t- and has t- had told them about what she was doing and what she needed and what she wanted to do next with her business, which was buy this particular new boat. And here's why it was awesome. And here's how much it cost that even though people chipped in what they could and it wasn't enough financially, one of the people that had heard about her need saw out of the blue an ad at a laundromat, like one of those tear sheets, you know, a Mm. piece of paper tacked up to the um, bulletin board at a laundromat that that said that there was some random person selling a boat and it was for a lot less than Cece had believed it would cost her. And so it turned out at this lower, like he called her and she was just about to give up on her raise, to be honest with you, and like throw in the towel. But he called her and said, there's actually a boat available. It's less than you thought it would be. What do you think? She called the guy, got the boat, was able to like do what she needed to do. Now, what I think there is, yeah, the money ended up helping her and she needed a little bit, but she didn't need what she originally thought she needed. She instead, I think the reason she was successful is that she put herself out there. She told the people around her, you know, what she needed, what she wanted, what she was going for. And that was sort of the secret. That was the thing that got her um, moving forward, uh, you know, to, to, to that next step. So anyway, yeah. that's the quote you're mentioning. That's what I love. It's, it's, I love it so much again, for a lot of reasons, but um that's some of my thinking behind it. And I think it's proven to be quite true in the case of Kiva and other things I've been able to do. And it's just, it just feels like a good life, um, kind of, you know, one, a mantra that I come back to a lot. Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. if I think I feel stuck, I ask myself, why am I stuck? What is it that I think I need before I can move forward? And then I really try to figure out, I mean, sure, try to, try to get the things I need. But there's often another way forward. And I think that, that great entrepreneurs know that. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like the constraints, the the limits that are there actually allow us to get more creative and do greater things. That's than exactly those, right. Yeah, if those limits. That's exactly are, right. Yeah. Um, now let's talk about another story from your life. I think it sure. was a time when you were trying to kind of make this business more official, and you went around to go work with the lawyers and uh, make this a more official entity and tell us the story and what happened there. Sure. So, uh, you know, because we were one of the very first organizations, for-profit, non-profit, you know, of any kind, um, and Kiva is a non-profit, but we, we were one of the first to do online person-to-person lending. Additionally, nobody was doing 0% loans. And so we had a ton of questions about what, you know, what was legal? How, how would we be regulated? How would you categorize this, this strange thing that was neither a donation, you know, neither a tax deductible donation, nor an interest bearing investment? Like what would that, you know, what was that supposed to, how did we, how did we, how did we manage that in a safe and legal way? We had a lot of legal questions. So we, we tried to meet with lawyers. Um, I cold called, gosh, I, I think it's 47 of them, but I cold called like so many. And, you know, once in a while we'd get in the, in front of people who would pretty much not want to touch this thing with a 10 foot pole because it was unprecedented. It was risky. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know what to make of it. So we had a lot of no's. Um, eventually, um, you know, so just before yeah. we go into the eventually part, uh, yeah. because I want to emphasize the fact that the lawyers were saying no to you was because the, there were regulations around the idea that you could not do peer to peer lending with, um, a specific, um, any kind of interest being paid back. Right. That's right. And we weren't doing that. 
Yeah. But it, and again, it's actually, it's, I, it's probably too complicated to go into mm-hmm. in just a few minutes on a phone call like this. But um, in short, if it's an interest bearing investment, if you're actually, if there's a financial upside, then it's categorized as a, as a security and it's regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, you know, by the SEC. Mm-hmm. But if it's, uh, if it's not, um, then it's, you know, if it's an interest bearing, if that, that's how it is, if it's an interest bearing investment, if it's a tax deductible donation, you know, it's, a, it's, you can write, you can write it off on your taxes. It's like a donation to a nonprofit, like many of us have, um, provided at times. So this was in between. This was just something different. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the case that we didn't know how it would be categorized. It wasn't the case that we were told, um, you can't, do it. It was just going to be a big mess, but we decided to try it anyway and to do it. You know, we, we got as much information as we could, but it's, it seemed like we weren't ever going to get the answer or not, not without a ton of expenditure and time up front. So we just decided to experiment and to test it out in the lowest risk way that we could, we could find. And that's what we did. Um, is that, is that kind of where you wanted you know, what you yeah. wanted to suss out with the story? Yeah, I, well, I guess what I really wanted to get at was the idea that you guys didn't wait for permission. Um, you didn't ask around for permission. You just went ahead and did it. And that's that's, nice, right. that's such an that's important right. component. Yeah, that's right. And there were things, you know, the legal stuff is, is just a beast. It's a mess to get into. But there were other um, ways in which we realized we, we were not necessarily like we did a bunch of interviews, informational interviews with anybody that would give us the time of day. And while, yeah, we wanted and needed information from them. We also, after months and months of this, were realizing that we just, we were just scared. We were scared to just try it because we didn't know if it would work or not. You know, again, aside from the legal stuff, we didn't know if it would work. We didn't know if our idea was crazy or brilliant. We didn't know if it was going to totally flop or if it was going to, you know, catch on and quickly. And so we were just worried. And we, I think we had this idea that if we talked to enough people, somebody out there or enough somebody's out there would tell us, yeah, yeah, no, it's good. You should try it. It'll work. It'll be great. Mm. <laughs> and like, sure, we had some positive feedback, but nobody could know the future. Not even us, not anyone else. Nobody was ever, was ever going to be able to guarantee us. Yeah, this will work. It'll be great. So in the end, we just, we just had to try. And, um, we realized that we were kind of asking for permission from, you know, who knew <laughs> from other people who had been at it for decades uh, from, you know, experts, from fellow entrepreneurs, from would be funders. Like we just, there was no one person who was ever going to be able to give us some kind of cosmic green light that it was going to be a success. We just had to try. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such a huge lesson for us yeah. entrepreneurs because uh, sometimes we get stuck in this loop of, uh, wait, nobody thinks my idea is good. Uh, right. Maybe I shouldn't be trying it. Right. Maybe I shouldn't be pursuing it. But, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now let's talk about another really important idea, which is, you know, the the fact that beginnings are kind of messy i mean they're they're rough edges it's and we have to embrace the rough edges that are there i mean uh, and i think there are a lot of stories from the early days of kiva if you want to tell us about the days when you didn't even have online processing payment processing and how you were handling salaries and stuff like that oh sure um so the scrappiness sort of factor i feel like can't be um over uh i don't know communicated but in the beginning you know 
I was literally taking like $20 bills from friends and family. We didn't have any online payment processing as I think you just mentioned. It was the very, very beginning. We were just taking money into our bank account, like our personal bank account and like wiring it over to a person, not even really another organization officially. Um, and just asking him to lend it out and collect payments. It was super, super scrappy and low tech, but it was enough to just get started. And there were a lot of other scrappy moments along the way. You know, you you, you don't have enough funds to pay people to design a certain feature um, on the website. Well, maybe you can beg your friends to hang out with you on a Saturday and work for free and you just buy them pizza. We did that a lot. Um, <laughs> we didn't have enough money. Again, this is kind of the part of, part of the, 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 primary lesson of the book and of, you know, my entrepreneurial journey, which is you don't have to, you don't, you can probably still move forward even without the things you think you need. We didn't have a, a proper logo. I mean, we could make stuff up on our own, but we really didn't have anything that, that looked good enough. And so we gave an old guitar of Matt's, my co-founders, to a graphic designer friend and said, can you make our logo? And actually up until what? What's the date? Up until, well, June 1st, they did a site redesign and they finally adjusted the logo a little bit, <laughs> but it lasted for 10 years. So, um, yeah, we paid for our first logo that lasted for a decade with an old guitar. So there, there's circumstance after circumstance that I can think back to and cite where we just, you know, you get, we got it done however we could yeah. <laughs> and it was messy and, um, chaotic, but we kept, we kept making it happen. It's yeah. not 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 too fancy. Yeah, and that that is like such an such an important thing for us to learn because it's always like we can always tell ourselves that okay, I need that before I launch or I need this before I take it out to public or I need to get this or I need to get that experience before I'm ready. But right. that never happens. Yeah, yeah. It never it, it never happens or you know what? Maybe it will happen, but the the joy of just getting it done and moving on to the next thing, even if it's imperfect, is just I've found it to be so much greater, so much more addicting than anything that's, you know, related to perfection. <laughs> I don't even know if it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, I want to talk about one more story because we have a little time here, um, which is about the idea of how or or tell us the story about why you rejected a $10 million offer from a corporate social responsibility group. Yes. So... Um, there was a time when, God, it was almost two years in, we had just facilitated about $10 million in loans. And I know this, I remember this moment because we had been on Oprah, super amazing and kind of random, like Harpo Studios called the office. <laughs> we thought it was a prank call at first and said, do you want to come on the show in, in two weeks? And we said, okay. So it was, it was right after this like crazy epic moment for us where we got to be, you know, interviewed by the queen herself um, with President Clinton, no less. So it was this crazy time. Wow. We had a ton of traffic and, and attention. And in fact, the site crashed during the week following. And one of the things that happened was that we got this phone call during this onslaught of traffic in response to Oprah from a gentleman who worked at a big, you know, one of the big Silicon Valley companies at the, of the time. And he said, hey, love what you're doing at Kiva. I have $10 million for my corporate social responsibility budget that I want to put into Kiva. What do you say? And in short, he didn't want to do the thing that Kiva had decided Kiva would do, which was, this is the mission statement, to connect people through lending to alleviate poverty. It wasn't that. Uh, he didn't want to divide up this $10 million and allow 
you know, individuals from his company, whether uh, clients or staff or anyone else that they knew. He didn't want to divide this money up and allow people to lend to other people and have this experience. He wanted to just kind of dump it into the system and get it back in nine months or 10 months whenever people were paid. And it would kind of have been this humanless, faceless glut of money. Now, is it a bad thing to have $10 million loaned out to people who need it? Of course not. But was it what Kiva was designed to do? No, it would have taken opportunities away from other like $25, $50 at a time from other individuals who wanted to provide that same capital. So we ended up saying very, I ended up saying on that phone call and it, it felt very uh, actually so easy to do. I was able to say, no, thank you. And, you know, you might be interested in these other opportunities and kind of move on and, and say no to that $10 million. So that, you know, was a moment when I think very few nonprofits have that. Ex- well, I think in small ways, a lot of organizations and a lot of nonprofits, for-profits have the experience of being approached by a funder or a par- potential partner who may have great intentions, but might want to take them slightly off track. Uh, you, you know, they, they might want to do something to, that's not unrelated to their mission, but not quite smack in the middle of the mission that they've set out to mm-hmm. accomplish. And while it's nice to do a lot of good things that are, you know, close to what you wanted to do in the world, I think great organizations know to focus and know to stay um, absolutely uh, sharply focused on that mission statement and on the, on on what they've decided to do and to do uniquely in the world. So that's that we learned that lesson not just that time but at many other moments throughout uh, Kiva's Kiva's existence. Yeah, you you guys stuck with your mission and you said we're gonna we're gonna be tough. I mean, this is this is so tough for any any organization, whether you're nonprofit or for profit. Right. Until that time, you had raised, you said, about $10 million? Yes, we had facilitated $10 million in loans on the, um, on the site. Yeah. And here's someone who's willing to basically double everything you've done so far. And you guys decide, no, this does not align with the, with the mission. Uh, right. In fact, had. it would take away from the mission. Because yeah. we would have had to say no to a bunch of other, you know, wonderful individuals who wanted to have this experience of coming onto the site and lending to specific people and, you know, having that experience. Mm. This is, yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's pretty amazing that you guys had the fortitude or the, the, the courage to say no to something as big. But at the same time, you, you aligned with your mission. And as entrepreneurs, it's, it's a scary thing to do sometimes because these things can happen not in just, just in terms of funding. It could happen in terms of an offer or in terms of a customer asking you to do something that you think would be a great, uh, monetary reward in the short term. Right. But you say no. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. This is this has been a lot of fun, uh, Jessica. A lot of great learnings in this book, and Good. I highly recommend uh, our listeners, a- anyone who's interested in uh, uh, learning the story of Kiva, but not only learning the story of Kiva, more about how a company is born in the early days. Uh, definitely grab the copy. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate the time and attention and um, I'm just so glad you found the book to be valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for our listeners, Jessica, how can they find you? Where are you online? Oh, follow me on Twitter. It's just at Jessica Jackley, J-E-S-S-I-C-A-J-A-C-K-L-E-Y. Um, that's kind of the best, most central place at this point. Um, and yeah, I'm actually working on something new and we'll announce that in coming months. So please follow me and stay tuned because I'll be shouting it from the rooftops when it happens. <laughs> you got it. Well, thank you very much, Jessica. Thank you. Take care. 
So as you step back from this interview and look at the big picture, uh, you will realize that the single biggest trait that allowed Jessica to succeed at building Kiva was her mental toughness. I mean, she just had a dream, but she had the courage to pursue the dream. She persisted through numerous ups and downs and failures. She did not take no for an answer and she didn't wait for all the resources to get started. She just started and figured it out as she went along. She was gritty. She was persistent. She was perseverant. She was mentally tough. And that is why we have created the 90 day 2x mental toughness video course, because every great thinker, entrepreneur, philosopher, researcher, athlete over thousands of years now has come to the same conclusion that mental toughness, persistence, grit, whatever you want to call it, it's the single biggest indicator and predictor of success in every walk of life and that we can we can build we can build mental toughness over time so in this course we summarize 40 of the greatest books on the topic of mental toughness you get daily videos and action items on the most important ideas from these books for 90 days every single day so by the time you're done you will have a complete tool set of over 90 great ideas to build your mental toughness and use them when needed you will have access to over 10 plus hours of video content in this course. Also, you get access to the clickable mind maps of each of these books. So you can quickly zoom in and zoom out of any idea and, and just look at the whole book in a matter of seconds. Um, the course goes live on August 15, but you can sign up as an early adopter right now and get a huge discount. Uh, the course will be uh, sold for $99 when it goes live on 5th, August 15th. But right now you can get you can sign up for early adopter for only $39. That's 60% off the final 60% discount. And we will be raising prices every Sunday. That's our plan. So if you want to get this course now would be a great time to sign up as an early adopter and get the course for only $39 as you know, the prices will go up every Sunday. So all the information is at 2000books.com slash tough. That's T-O-U-G-H tough, like mental toughness tough. So 2000books.com slash tough. Or you can just text the word toughness to 44222 and get your early adopters discount. That's toughness, T-O-U-G-H-N-E-S-S to 44222. I hope to see you on the inside of the member section and uh, enjoy this course. Okay, talk to you later. Bye-bye. 